You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Whitley Strieber is the author of The Hunger, The Wolfen, The Night Church, Communion, and The Greys. His newest book is 2012, The War for Souls. Thank you for joining me, Whitley. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. One of the things that I just find absolutely fascinating is the UFO subculture. And I wonder if you care to talk about your experiences with that. Sure. It's a very mixed bag. Uh, I met some people who were very exploitative. I also met some people who were very capable and incredibly courageous and incredibly brain-bendingly determined, like Stanton Friedman, who is uh, been, he knows literally everything about UFOs. I was approached by a, 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 a legal counsel for the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence who was either personally fascinated with the subject or representing senators. I really never knew which, but we got to be good friends and enjoyed his him a lot. And uh, he used to come up to the cabin in hopes of having close encounter experiences. Of course, he didn't, sadly. Um, a lot of people did. But in any case, I, I introduced him to Stanton Friedman. And he called me up and he said, why didn't you tell me how much that guy talks? <laughs> <laughs> and Friedman is... It, Typical of the of the best of these people, they are. He's very well informed, and he's right about a lot of things. I'll tell you one thing he's right about is the Roswell incident, and I'll tell you why. When after I wrote Communion, I had an uncle, another of these rather amazing generation of members of my family, my father's generation. His his brother, blood one of his blood brothers, not his uh, brother-in-law was a, uh, an intelligence officer with the United States Air Force for his career, Edward Strieber. And I published Communion. I didn't tell anyone in the family about it because, frankly, I was sort of hoping they wouldn't notice. <laughs> but they did. Good, good luck with that. <laughs> right. They did. Oh, God. You know, when my brother told my mother about it, she said, oh, my God, Whitley's written about the little men. Not little men, but the little men. And then when I questioned her about this, she said, oh, I just, it was just a mistake, uh, just a slip of the tongue. But anyway, my uncle said to me, he said to me, I want you to come down to San Antonio. He was at retired at Lackland Air Force Base at the time. I want you to come down to San Antonio. I have something to tell you about this business that you've written about. So I went down there, and he said, have you heard of the Roswell incident? And I had, yeah, by that time. I'd been doing a lot of research, of course. I said, sure, I have heard about it. And he said, well, I have something to tell you about it. I was one of the officers who attempted to reassemble the debris from this that was brought to Wright Field from Roswell in 1947. And I was flabbergasted. I said, I can't believe it. I thought it was nonsense. I thought it was a uh, balloon. He said, no, 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 no. We, that not, was not a balloon, and I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll introduce you to my commanding officer, Arthur Exon. And I, I, I had a number of conversations with General Exxon, and he said at the get-go, from the fir his first words were, 
Everyone from Truman on down knew what we had found was not of this world within 24 hours of our finding it, and that's a direct quote. And he said that he had been liaison between, with, the air, with the scientific group that was attempting to study this material until 1963. And I also learned from him about the reasons that they keep it secret. And the reasons are two. One is that they are unable to control it, and they really don't know what is going on, and they are very concerned that if the general public were to find this out and to know that whatever's there can affect people so profoundly personally that people would really be scared. And the second reason is much more abstruse, but uh, more compelling. And I wrote a short story about it called The Open Doors, uh, based around the death of the man who came up with the second reason to keep it uh, 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 secret, uh, John von Neumann. Uh, you know inventor, who? inventor of the uh, self-replicating robot. Right, the man who invented the concept of the von Neumann machine. Yes. And who was most extraordinarily interested in the possibility of beings traveling around the universe and so on and so forth. And uh, uh, who also worked in the area of quantum physics and the quantum perception problem and came up with the idea that it may be that different minds assemble reality in different ways and that if we were to open our world to this mind, wherever it comes from, without knowing whether they're aliens or what they may be, it may be that the world would literally reassemble itself according to the laws of physics as they understood them, and we would be left in a state of helpless non-meaning and unable ever, ever to close that door. And that is an argument so compelling and so frightening that I believe it. And I think that, that the reason that the government always will deny this reality is they fear that their admission of its existence might be a kind of tripwire. And this comes up in your book. Yeah. As, as the, the, the question of belief, that believing in things makes them more real and what, gives them yeah. access to our world. And this gets us back to the cargo cults and the early religions and the whole thrust of, of religion and, and the relationship between the mind and reality. What is that relationship? Right now, it would seem that things like religious practice are very ephemeral and that imagination is very ephemeral. ephemeral excuse me. But if we press the wrong button, or would it be the right button, would it change? And would we find ourselves in a situation where perhaps our worst imaginings, our best imaginings, became part of reality? There's a very interesting little backwater of physics called Physics from Fisher Information, which postulates that there, is, there must be information beneath the, the, the way reality appears. In other words, why, why does it come out looking this way? There must be something that causes, at, 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 the, at the atomic level, causes things to assemble as they do. And this is Fisher information. And essentially what von Neumann was saying, even though the idea of physics from Fisher information hadn't evolved at the time he was talking about this, and apparently, according to Exxon, in the mid-50s, was that their mind may assemble reality differently. And if that happened, 
we might never be able to escape from it. We might be kind of forever trapped in, the, in, in fairyland. And, and you go back to the wonderful stories of the, of, of, of the fairy lore and of people being taken into this never, never land and dancing with the fairies for a few hours and then coming home and finding years and years have passed. Are you familiar? You're familiar, of course, with Arthur Machen. Yes, and, and his... The White People. Is, is I think the the premier work of that. It's a diary of a young girl written entirely from her point of view. Yes, I'm familiar with that, and I'm also familiar with the fact that there are people who believe that these white people live out near Area 51, <laughs> 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 which is so fascinating. And and I know a man who believes he saw one gambling at a casino in Laughlin, Nevada. <laughs> Really? Yes. <laughs> One of the things I really like about uh, these things you're telling me is that um, there's a certain absurdity that, that uh, permeates uh, this new book, and, and I think uh, yes, a, a lot my of life. writing. Your life. Of course. <laughs> well. Exactly. Well, I, you know, I, it's, it's, more, it's, it's more a delight in the anarchic. I love... The anarchic. I was a big practical joker when I was a kid, and when I uh, first wrote Communion, I had friends from college, uh, Molly Ivins being one of them, who absolutely didn't buy it. I said to Molly, I said, "Do you buy this?" She's not at all. She said, "It's bullshit." <laughs> I said, "But it's not bullshit, Molly. The horrible irony is that it really happened, and it was to me." And she said, "Well, all I can say is." You deserve it more than anybody I've ever known. I used to, well, I, I, I did things in just st- silly college pranks, but they were, some of them were effective. Uh, my father was often the, the victim of these jokes, uh, and his reality was tested. Uh, uh, once we made, we used to s- make these, when I was in 12 or 13, 11, make, we would go into the maids' quarters and fill cleaning bags, which were new then. They had just come out, the plastic cleaning bags that are so ubiquitous now. We would close them, iron them closed with a very, very uh, cool iron and, you know, just barely warm, and they would melt closed so you could seal them. And then we'd fill them with gas from a gas jet while she was in the house working. And that night, we'd make little time fuses and send them off, and they'd look like the Hindenburg blowing up over the neighborhood. And they, Afterwards, you'd hear people yelling, and soon a siren would go up and down the streets, and it was great fun. One day, we kind of got carried away. You were hoaxing UFOs. <coughs> Unwitting. <laughs> Un- early, early on. Unwittingly, early on, yes. Yes. And we got a bit carried away doing this, and we had a big house, and the roof was quite high, and by the end of the afternoon, there was a massive confabulation of con- conglomeration of 70 of these things up on the roof, a huge mass of these balloons. And we decided to let them off, but during the course of the afternoon, we decided to make different types of time fuses and have rockets flying off of it because it, it could carry a lot of lift. And so we set it off at about 9 o'clock at night, and Daddy was down in the front yard watering, which he was usually doing at this, facing away from the house and facing a big, tall, 50 or 60-foot high hedge and watering a couple of plants just beneath it. The thing went sailing off across the front yard. Unfortunately, it was too heavy, (laughs) and it didn't clear the hedge. And I 
and it got stuck in the top of the hedge. And I realized it's going to go off, and he's going to see it. He's going to be he's, he's 50 feet. He's right below it. And, I, you know, I'm telling my friends, it's been nice knowing you guys. I'm obviously off to boarding school, and they're sort of disappearing into the night one after another. And it goes off. And it, you see the entire, I, the flames were just shooting up almost to the top of the sky. And you can see the entire front yard becomes filled with flickering and orange flickering. And you can see him stiffen. And he realizes, he sees the flickering. He turns around and you see his face looking up at the roof where we were, but he couldn't see us because we were in shadow with this horrified, awed expression on his face because he thinks it's the house that's burning, of course. Then he turns around and he sees, looks up and sees what must have been simply a wall of fire just disappearing into the sky. He falls on his back with the water shaking the hose as he pushes himself along with his heels and then turns over and crawls back to the house in which at which moment foop the whole thing is gone out so by this time all the other boys are gone i go down and i'm waiting in my room for doom to strike and nothing whatsoever happens so finally I, i'm thinking of all these apologies and excuses i go downstairs and He's sitting there in the living room with a wet cloth on his head in, the, in, the, in, his, in his easy chair. And I'd say something. I'd say, are you feeling okay, Daddy? And he just stares. So I go back into the bedroom and I say, Mama, what's wrong with Daddy? She said, he's not feeling very well tonight, Whitley. Leave him alone. And for the next couple of days, he sort of walked around with this glazed expression on his face, but it was never mentioned. And I think that he thought that it was a hallucination. He couldn't imagine that his kid could have generated such a disaster. With that kind of a reputation, basically nobody among my friends or family believed communion. <laughs> that's, well, that's really interesting. Now, as you, I wonder, like to talk about the reception of that book. Um, it was made into a movie. A sort of. Uh, sort of. Not a very good movie, unfortunately. But, the, well, you know, when we published it, the editor and I had known each other for years. And no one, it, it was sent around to different publishing houses in New York. No one would touch it. Cer certain publishing houses, I, people believe it's a literary hoax and I should be punished for that for the rest of my life. And unfortunately, it's a cruel punishment because it's no hoax, not a bit of it. I can understand the hoax part, but not the punishment. It's, it's been too long. And uh, there are still publishing houses that will not even read a book from Whitley Strieber because they feel I should be punished for having written communion. But aren't you, uh, on your uh, blog, you talk about how they, that you've been verified now continuously over the All these years. years as, that as doesn't being matter. The truth. That doesn't matter. Well, like, for example, the, the thing in my ear. I, in May of 1989, I was awakened in, by noises in the house, in my cabin in upstate New York, and I opened my eyes in this house, which was surrounded by security and filled with security, uh, as you may imagine at that point. I've been doing this now for four or five years at that time. And there were two people standing at the foot of the bed, a man and a woman, human beings, perfectly normal except they were really in the wrong place at the wrong time. Three o'clock in the morning, you don't want to wake up and find people in your room. So I immediately 
went for the shotgun under the bed uh, rather than the pistol in the drawer because it was faster to grab the shotgun. And they came around the bed, and the next thing I knew, it was dark, black. I couldn't move, but I could feel pressure. I was lying on my right side, and I could feel pressure on the left side of my head, coming and going, coming and going. And then they were gone. I jumped out of bed. There was a huge flash of light and a lot of crashing in the woods, and it ended. I didn't know at that time, I was not able to tell whether things like that were dreams or not, because I was having a great deal of difficulty with that. So I spent some time reading and finally went back to bed. The next day, though, the ear began to hurt, and there was a little lump in it that hadn't been there before. And I knew about the stories about implants being out there, and it made me very nervous. And eventually I went to the doctor, to a doctor in San Antonio, Texas. I, I, by that, the next fall, or a couple of years later, we moved. I had, uh, uh, had the doctor in New York said it was a cyst. It was a benign little cyst, and to just leave it alone. But I'd, and I couldn't say to him, well, I want it taken out anyway, because then he would ask me why, and I didn't want to explain why. Mm-hmm. So hadn't he read your book? or didn't he The doctor in New York had not. Mm-hmm. But the doctor in San Antonio had, John Lerma, and he was fascinated. And I told him the same thing. It was a cyst, and it got irritated. He sort of played along, but he was very eager to see what was actually in there. I didn't tell him anything about the experience I just described, of course. And he... He actually thought at the time that I was right that it was a cyst, uh, and he said, "Of course, I'll remove it. It's you know, it's it, it's nothing, and so it's an in-office procedure." But when he opened up the dissected away from it, it turned out to be a little white disc, and he touched it with his scalpel, preparing to remove it, and it zipped away and moved down into the bottom of my earlobe, whereupon he closed the incision because he was not expecting that. Understandably. Yes. (laughs) He sent the fragment of it he had recovered to to pathology, as as per usual practice in medicine. In the pathology lab, the pathologist actually called him and said, this is the strangest thing. Is this a practical joke? Are you you pulling my leg? And he said, no. What what is it? He said, well, this is something... With organic material, that ha- it's got cilia on it, and it's infused into some sort of a metal base. Where did you get this? And he said, I got it out of a guy's ear. And he said, oh, God. <laughs> then a couple of days passed, and it moved back up to the original position, which is where it is now. Now, I don't think that's a... Na- I think that they put that in my ear somehow. And I think it is... It is, it is that what we are looking at there is the edge of a very genuine mystery. And I I don't think I should be treated as I have been treated because it is a genuine mystery. It is not a hoax of any kind. The world, however, doesn't really like mysteries. Mysteries, uh, the mystery genre is not about the mystery. It's about the solution. That's the problem because every time I talk about this, when I talk about it on my own radio program or in an interview like this or anything, I have to tell the truth. And the truth is we don't know what this mystery actually is. Did I actually see two human beings there? That's what it seemed like. But in this thing, when I have seen creatures that could walk through walls, that, and I have had people uh, 
videographer in my house with low-light cameras one night, trying like hell to get some video of these little beings. And he saw one of them turn into a, from a little gray being with a great big head and the whole thing like on the cover of communion, into something with the head of a falcon. In before his eyes. And then it proceeded to disappear from the face of the earth. And uh, an hour later, my, wa- my son and I, who were sleeping in the woods, because there were 17 people sleeping in the cabin at the time, uh, came up to the house and saw this strange, translucent, hooded figure come rushing out of the house, go down the deck, and off through the woods. When we went to the house, back to the house, the videographer and his wife, who had been sleeping in the living room on a convertible couch, were standing up because they felt like they had been set afire they were actually thinking that they had been burned by something that expelled an immense amount of heat just as it apparently left. Now, what you see here are two things. You see something out of mythology happening before his eyes. It sounded like an in- Indian legend. Or, or, an, or it could be Horus, the god Horus. And, but then what you see is something that is almost identifiable as a technological effect in that if there, that thing was, became invisible and was there, it could be that it was using something that actually bent light around it, something that had its own, somehow its own gravity that would enable it to bend the light around it so that it couldn't be seen, that the light from behind it was being projected into the front. But in order to do this, it must have been generating and holding in a lot of heat. And then when it left, it released some of that heat, becoming somewhat apparently translucent and leaving the heat behind. So there's technology and fairy lore and mythology all in one event. And and we're right... Witnessed by four people. And we're right into uh, the late Arthur C. Clarke territory, aren't we? Well, sort of, but he was much more rejecting of the possibility that any of this stuff might be real. He preferred to believe, as most scientists do, when they talk about discovery of other intelligences, it's always us doing the discovering. Well, we I was are thinking of, actually, I, what, what, what were you thinking of? I, no, tell me. Well, his, the Clark's Law, any sufficiently advanced technology is oh, yes. indistinguishable from magic. Yes, it, that's right. But he, 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 he couldn't stand this stuff. This was too much for him. It was too magical. As a, uh, a writer, uh, y- you started out writing horror. Yeah. And what made you make that choice? Did you start out writing, like, short stories? Were you Oh, yeah. I wrote... I, I've been writing since I was six. I wrote all kinds of short stories, fiction, everything. I wrote seven novels before I published a book. And they were... They ranged from... Very literary explorations of the inner life of various different wanderers to comic novels, uh, uh, to one novel set in the old South before the Civil War, uh, all kinds of things. I was just sort of trying to feel my way. And then one night I was out walking. I used to walk in the middle of the night. We lived near Central Park, and I I would walk uh, in the park late at night which you would think, oh, gosh, how dangerous. It's not dangerous because there's no mugger going to be out there that'd starve to death because there's nobody else out there either. So it was very lovely and quiet, and I liked the dark, and I was walking in the dark, and I found myself going down actually the literary walk uh, path and uh, being shadowed by a pack of dogs. And it was was really pretty scary 
and I, you know, I got out of the park as quickly as I could because there were quite a few dogs involved, too many, more than you would think. There must have been at least 10 or 12 back in the shadows. And that was the genesis for the first horror novel, The Wolfen. And, of course, The Wolfen are very predatory and they have these big eyes and they are very brilliant. And uh, they're very much like the Greys, who later emerged into my reality. And then there's another subset of the UFO alien phenomenon called the Blondes, who also have emerged into my life in different ways, some that I'm not even going to discuss. And, of course, the next book, The Hunger, is about a very dangerous, predatory, blonde, but beautiful blonde creature. And, and speaking of next books, y you have a book coming out next year, I believe, called Midnight. Midnight. And, and this takes a, another nightmarish scenario, and I have to ask you about that. That's kind of a... You really like to court <laughs> controversy and danger, don't you? I'm, I, Midnight is about the danger of nuclear terrorism. And the reason I wrote it is we're getting tired. We're tired of worrying about terrorists. And in the immediate future, we are going to decide that terrorism isn't really much of a problem. However, it is a problem. It is a very serious problem. And nuclear terrorism in particular is a problem because the Russians have been quite derelict over the past 20, 20 years or so in, in maintaining control of the nuclear materials in their possession. The United States has lost a lot of plutonium. Britain has lost a lot of plutonium. And even a very small amount of this substance, if assembled correctly in, in, in proper hardware, can cause a devastating explosion. And in my book, what I do is I illustrate how a group of terrorists, unconnected to al-Qaeda or any known terror organizations at all in any way whatsoever could basically bring the world to its knees with just one or two bombs because once they've blown one off all they have to do is say that they have more and we've lost then we become whatever they want us to become and they issue a series of directives in my novel uh, 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 imposing Sharia law on the West. And, and uh, uh, I think it's an important book, and I hope people take it seriously, but I doubt that they will. I, I think that, that what, the, what is the Bush administration has been so stunningly, breathtakingly derelict in its failure to properly secure this country against the danger of nuclear terrorism. It's now all these years since 911, and we still really don't have our borders secured with proper detection equipment at all. It just went in in the Port of Los Angeles a couple of months ago. All of this time has passed, and we haven't done a thing. And there are people out there who are terribly, terribly serious and who are dedicated and it is a very, very extreme danger. And Europe is in even worse shape. Europe's done almost zero to secure itself against this type of terrorism. You like to be kind of a, a, a prophet of disaster, and you're a good one as far as that goes. You've talked about the coming 
war and the uh, the coming global superstorm as well. And this is well, something that uh, and this coming global superstorm ties into your latest novel, doesn't it? Ties into 2012. With oh, sure. With respect to the Mayan prophecies. With respect to the Mayan prophecies, well, I'm very interested in. First of all, it, it's it's Jose Arguez who said that the December the 21st, 2012, is a, a, a day that will live, as it were, in infamy. Uh, it, it's not clear, and that's that's being unfair to him. It's not exactly what he said, but uh, he said it was a very important day, and it in and it is indeed a day of ending in the Mayan calendar. I suspect it's going to come and go with very little change. Uh, whatever's happening then won't won't be dramatically affected by that events on that particular day. I don't think there's any magic to it. However, it's most interesting to me that they see the end of the age essentially coming at a time when it may indeed, in fact, come, because there is so much happening now, uh, economically, politically, in terms of the environment. Just a few. A couple of issues ago in The New Scientist, um, there was a comment to the effect that scientists are now saying that the, the superstorm scenario from day after tomorrow is not all that far-fetched, which surprised me because I, was trying to, I wasn't trying to say it would really happen. I was writing a work of fiction that would, uh, that would uh, address the, uh, get the popular imagination, just as I'm doing with Midnight and I did with War Day and I, uh, Nature's End to get the popular imagination to wrap itself around this problem so that then when the Al Gores come along, they have a, 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 an open mind, a public that's eager to, to hear them, you know. Because prior to Day After Tomorrow and Superstorm, there was no traction at all for, 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 for global warming concerns. And then afterwards, there was more traction. And then People began to exploit it successfully, and now it's, it's, it's considered a serious problem by any number of people, although I read the other day that, the United, that, that the, a poll showed that the American public was not willing to spend even one penny more of gasoline tax in order to help solve the global warming problem. And I'm trying to remember if that was on Fox News and therefore fake, or if it was a real poll, I forget. <laughs> one of the things that, that you've talked about, and I think that... Uh, permeates, again, 2012, and a lot of your work, is the idea of coming, it comes out of Kurt Vonnegut, coming unstuck in time. Well, I'm not so sure that it's clear that time is what it seems to be. Uh, there is a most interesting, speaking of the New Scientist, article in a couple of, couple of weeks ago about whether or not the Super Hadron Collider would mark the beginning of our ability to move through time. Because what's so fascinating, it's getting ready to be turned on, it could be that it will project particles through time. And if that's the case, then theoretically, 2008, when it's turned on, will be year zero for future time travelers. This will be the year back to which they will be able to come. And it could be, therefore, that those tourists that Stephen Hawking was looking for are going to show up <laughs> this year. But what will they look like to us? Well, it might be that the whole experience of extra-temporal perception will be very, very different from what we think. And the reason is that we, we do know that the principle of least action, 
will affect time travelers. And that's the principle, one of the basic principles of physics, by which water, for example, if you pour water out down a, down a, a, a slope, it will always seek the lowest possible place. Uh, nothing in nature expends more energy than it must to do what it must do. Ergo, uh, a time traveler will be prevented by the principle of least action. Uh, a, a, and a, a Russian mathematician a few years ago produced some very elegant math to show that this must be the case, will be prevented by the principle of least action from uh, going back and killing his own grandfather. Those discontinuities won't be possible. But to the observer who the time traveler is traveling to, what will that mean in terms of the way we perceive the time travelers? Because it will do something to our perception. It has to. Because this is all an issue of perception. And we may literally become unstuck in time. In fact, we may already be unstuck in time. Because if, if it's true that aliens showed up here in 1947 who were capable of traveling through time, and then they would sh logically show up in 19, on a certain given day, they would immediately project themselves across our whole timeline in order to make it appear as if they were part of our reality, especially if they were trying to penetrate it from another reality as we spoke about earlier. They would be, it would be a military action, a, a gigantic deception to get us to integrate them into our reality. And perhaps for benign or, 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 or benevolent reasons, and perhaps not. But no, time, time, moving through passing time as we do is just a convenient way of organizing our lives. That's all. It doesn't have anything to do with what is really unfolding, I don't think. We've been speaking with Whitley Strieber. His new book is 2012, The War for Souls. Thank you for joining me, Whitley. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>